Welcome to season two of Tiny Expeditions, a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. This season is all about the science of plants and agriculture. I'm your co-host and storyteller, Chris Powell. And I'm your co-host and science advisor, Dr. Sarah Sharman. Before we get into today's episode, we want you to be aware that portions of this podcast were recorded in binaural audio, meaning There may be times where it sounds like something or someone is behind you or to the side of you. Don't worry, we planned it this way to take you on the journey with us, and to experience this in its fullest, we advise you to wear headphones or use surround sound speakers, but if you don't have those available, don't worry, you'll still have a great experience. Let's get into today's episode. Most children who grow up in Alabama will be asked one simple question when they start school. Who do you go for? And there are only two acceptable answers. Auburn War Eagle! Alabama Roll Tide! Here in the South, we take our college football traditions very seriously. From the midnight yell at Texas A&M, to the Rammer Jammer chant after a win at the University of Alabama, to the ringing of the cowbells at Mississippi State University. One of the most iconic traditions that has happened on celebratory nights for decades is the rolling of Toomer's Corner at Auburn University. After an Auburn victory, students storm the corner of College Street and Magnolia Avenue in downtown Auburn. This is also known as Toomer's Corner, and they throw toilet paper over the two live oak trees that reside there. It is thought that this tradition began because employees of Toomer's Pharmacy would let students know that the Tigers football team had won an away game by taking their telegraph ticker tape and throwing it over the power lines. In 2010, Auburn and their cross-state rival Alabama both had national championship aspirations. Hello again, everybody, and War Eagle. I'm Rod Bramlett with Stan White and Quint Riggins at Bryant-Denny Stadium, where over 100,000 have gathered the largest crowd ever to watch Auburn and Alabama play football. Oh, the reason Alabama to- came into the game ranked 11th in the country while Auburn was ranked 2nd and brought with them an undefeated season to that point. The Tigers were energized by Cam Newton and had their eyes set on a national championship, but all of that looked to be in jeopardy as Auburn trailed Alabama 24 to nothing in the first half. In the second half, Cam Newton led a comeback, and the Tigers ultimately won 28-27. In the South, though, the storylines of games like this rarely end when the final whistle blows. Unfortunately, the two iconic live oak trees that had lived on Toomer's Corner since 1937 got caught in the crosshairs of that loss when they were poisoned by an angry Alabama football fan. Uh, And and these trees were poisoned in in such an intense way that there was no way to save them. And that's the voice of Dr. Alex Harkist, an evolutionary biologist who is a joint faculty member at Auburn University and the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Uh, Even though professors tried, uh, they tried to replace all the soil. Um, This herbicide that was used, uh, Tebethurion or Spike 40, is um, very powerful. It's hard to describe, you know, the people were feeling and going through back at that time. That's the voice of Dr. Les Gertzen, an Auburn assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences. Dr. Gertzen is an evolutionary geneticist, and he was on campus during the time of the Tumors Oaks poisoning. 
you know, the, our entire campus was just, you know, a mess. Uh, it was an extremely emotional event, uh, but still one that uh, with so much significance and such a, uh, a sort of a senseless uh, kind of crime or incident as well. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, lot, a lot to go through. You know, people were uh, were really looking for a way to try to respond like uh, constructively. Uh, we had colleagues, and in fact, uh, really the the community on the University of Alabama campus was also you know incredibly supportive in raising funds to save the trees and things like that as well. So there was a lot of a uh, outpouring of goodwill, people trying to find a trying to find a way to respond kind of positively. But all of this goodwill can only take you so far with trees that are about to die. Leaders at Auburn and across the state had to quickly decide how they were going to try to save or memorialize the trees. Before the Toomer's oak trees died, not many people know this actually, a few professors from the Department of Horticulture, uh, as well as the College of Science and Math, took clonal suckers off of this tree. You know, within uh, within just a week or so of, uh, of the incident, uh, uh, and everyone, you know, on the science side realizing, you know, from what what, what those trees got hit with, we knew we were going to lose them. There was just no coming back from that. And so uh, Gary Kiever, who was the guy who was really responsible for the, the collection of cuttings and the, uh, the efforts to save the tree and things like that in those days, um, he had asked us to come out there to, uh, to help out with that kind of cutting situation and make some herbarium vouchers for the museum, like actual specimens of that of those trees so that they were also uh, they, they were also vouchered as a museum specimen, another sort of you know, tribute in a way to the trees. And uh, at that time, you know, I uh, grabbed, uh, you know, a couple Ziplocs bag full of, full of leaves that were still more or less fresh on the tree and put them straight into the minus 80 just for the, for the, you know, the posterity, for the eventuality that we might be able to do uh, something with them. Dr. Gertzen and team had the foresight to not only take samples and freeze them for later study, they also took clippings of the tree to create exact clonal representations of the tumor's oaks. Scientists call these clonal suckers. These are the actual physical pieces of the tree that you know, were induced into rooting and then regrown in pots and replanted out into you know, literally perfect copies of the original tree. The original frozen samples collected in 2013 are limited in number, so having these identical clones of the original tumor's oaks is important for the longevity of biological projects on the trees. In addition, live tissue is better for some experiments because freezing and thawing can damage cells. We want all the, all the, fresh, uh, the fresh live cells and we want the various and diverse tissues as well for various aspects of, say, the genome annotation, that type of thing. So the question still remains, how do you memorialize a tree that means so much to so many people? Well, as it turns out, the answer to that question is in the tree itself, in its DNA. We thought, you know, something like a genome project, which is a very lasting and a very sort of high honor in a way to make these trees the, the representatives of their species, that was going to enshrine them basically forever in the annals of science. With the samples that Dr. Gertzen and his team took from the tumor's oaks, they were able to get those samples to Dr. Harkis and sequence them to put together what is known as a reference genome. Dr. Sharman, can you share a little more light on what a reference genome is and why is this important? A reference genome is a representative example of a set of DNA sequences for a species. They're important because they serve as a template for scientists when they're sequencing other members of the same species. So in the case of our oak trees, the tumor's oak tree genome will be used as a guide for assembling the sequences of any live oaks that are sequenced after it, 
Basically, the scientists are piecing together a puzzle, and the reference genome is the picture telling you where each piece goes. Reference genomes also serve as a point of comparison when scientists are looking for disease or trait-causing changes in DNA. Scientists can compare the DNA of an organism to the reference genome to find these changes in the DNA sequence. So because of the reference genome, the impact of the tumor's oaks will live on well past them and will help give us insight into oaks themselves. And oaks are incredibly important. Three things come to mind when I think of the power and the importance of oaks as an entire genus. Uh, Those three things are, are life, their ability to support life, their ability to sequester carbon, and their ability to control water. There are almost 600 species of oak trees. Roughly a third of them are endangered. And the reason this matters so much is because uh, oaks, in many ways, because of this incredible connectivity that they have, meaning that they support so much of the food web, they are called keystone species. A keystone species is something that, uh, if you remove it, kind of like the keystone of an arch, the whole system collapses. 84% of counties in the United States have an oak as the number one plant keystone species. And remember, one-third of those 600 oak species across the planet are currently endangered. So oaks are not just iconic campus treasures. They are integral parts of the ecosystem services and the food web that drives uh, diversity and, uh, and, and several other things that are important to how biodiversity functions. Oaks are incredible at carbon sequestration, meaning that oaks have huge canopies, huge trees often, and huge root systems. And if you have a lot of leaves, what you're able to do is suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it, either in your body as a tree or in the soil or in the roots surrounding it. In other words, oaks are one of our most powerful ways on our planet of storing carbon in the soil. Oak trees obviously have huge root systems, some of the biggest out of any of the tree systems on the planet today. So what they're able to do is, one, stabilize the ground, two, absorb a massive amount of water, And three, since they have these huge canopies, they're often able to buffer or protect the ground underneath. In other words, oaks act as this almost like sponge that keeps water where it falls. During their lifetime, the Tumors Oaks brought together the Auburn campus and were viewed as much more than just trees. Their genome is now being memorialized and will forever contribute to the scientific community. Now Dr. Gortson and Dr. Harkis have found a way to use this research to give back to the Auburn students too. Trees like oaks harbor amazing amounts of biodiversity. They bring together ecosystems. They are the keystone species. And without them, those ecosystems often fail. So why can't students also be part of those diverse ecosystems? And not just students, a diverse group of students that otherwise wouldn't necessarily have had an opportunity like this to work on a complex plant genome and develop uh, their skills as an author on a paper. So there's a lot of spin-off possibilities that are already afoot. We, we are turning this into, into actual uh, courses here at Auburn that graduate students are benefiting from and learning from. And so the, the educational spin-offs are, are happening. So I remember meeting a student at a conference about four years ago 
And, and I asked her, what do you think was the most important part of you landing at your dream school for a PhD? And she said, oh, that's easy. I had published papers as an undergraduate. And then it all clicked with me that even though we got rid of the GRE, we just changed the barriers for students to enter, and it's still difficult and not equitable in many ways. The students who are able to work in laboratories are often working in laboratories for little or no money, like for credit, for instance. And the students who are unable to do that need to work otherwhere, other places on campus uh, to actually make money. And so there's a certain amount of privilege that's baked in to the way that we uh, select for scientists for PhD and master's programs. And I wanted to change that in a small way that I thought was, was tangible. What we think is a potential solution to raising equity in the field of genomics has been right on our campuses this whole time. Dr. Harkis and Dr. Gertzen are reducing the barriers that keep students from attaining their goals as a scientist, primarily publishing. Not only are they allowing students a way to be published, they are giving them access to technology in the lab that many universities simply don't have access to. Let's take a moment and follow Dr. Harkis into the lab to see exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Badge in here. We're headed to the Hudson Alpha Genome Sequencing Center. And all along this set of corridors, you'll find uh, three or four laboratories that are really exclusively focused on the genomics of plants. There's my laboratory, there's Josh Clevenger's laboratory, Dr. Jane Grimwood's laboratory, and Jeremy Schmutz's. So as we're walking though, there's a ton of pictures here. Are, are these all plants that you work with? These are all plants that have been uh, sequenced and assembled here at Hudson Alpha. And this place is very special actually. For a long time, uh, we've avoided sequencing genomes of complex plants because it's so difficult and so expensive. But Hudson Alpha, since they have this historic expertise in working on things like the Human Genome Project that was published in 2001. Now they've taken all of that institutional knowledge and put it towards plants. And now, in this building, more plant genomes have been sequenced and assembled than anywhere else in the world. This is a PacBio SQL2 sequencer. This allows us to take DNA, huge pieces of DNA, and put it on these machines to sequence the A, T, C, G nucleotides that make up that DNA. In other words, we use machines like this, and we have a lot of them, as you can see, to sequence the genomes of complex plants. So in each of the machines we're looking at right now, DNA is being sequenced in each of these? On each of these machines right now, which are pretty much constantly running, we are sequencing different plant genomes almost all the time. The sequencing equipment that we just saw in the lab is very expensive and financially out of reach for many institutions. One of the reasons that this project took a decade to come to fruition was lack of funding. Even though they had developed this amazing project, Dr. Harkis and Dr. Gertzen still had to figure out a way to pay for it. Generating data like this costs money though, and so Dr. Les Gertzen and I were kind of in a conundrum. We needed to raise maybe eleven dollars or $12,000 just to generate the raw data uh, to put this tumor's oak genome together as part of this course. So right around this time that, that Dr. Gortzen and I were talking, every year Auburn has 
a crowdsource fundraising event called Tiger Giving Day. And every college gets to submit a proposal that ends up in this Tiger Giving Day. And uh, they're well advertised by the college. And the idea is that uh, they are for projects that are just necessary for some sort of student experience or uh, elevating a, a club or a group or providing new kinds of opportunities for students on campus. So Dr. Gortzen and I wrote a proposal for uh, decoding the Auburn Tumors Oak genome. And within uh, the 24-hour period that Tiger Giving Day was live, we raised almost $12,000 from all of the community, alumni, students, staff, faculty, even people not associated with Auburn were contributing money to this project. And it made me incredibly hopeful for the future of how we teach plant genomics, because people realized, I hope, that it's not just about a tree. It's about building a set of diverse experiences with diverse students to make a tree more than just a tree. While this project is wrapping up its first semester at Auburn this fall, Dr. Harkis and Dr. Gertson have their sights set on more campuses and more trees than just the Auburn Oaks. There's just, there's almost always a tree at every major university that has this kind of reputation or history or significance uh, culturally to the campus. Uh, they're very often oak trees. They are very often live oaks in the Southeast. It's amazing how many campuses like Texas A&M or, or Clemson or Hampton University all have some famous massive live oak tree that's of significance to just that campus. And so really uh, the, the, the what we're doing is immediately translatable. It could be mirrored at these other universities. Uh, we're building sort of the, a framework for how to do something like this, all the way from the crowdsource funding of the alums and other interested parties through to the educational products, the actual science itself. And then once you get a second tree done at a second place, you immediately got a point of comparison to, for example, the tumor zone. But we're looking to work with uh, some people at, uh, at uh, Hampton University in Virginia who have an incredibly significant, uh, culturally important tree called the Emancipation Oak on their campus. It's a massive multi-hundred-year-old live oak tree. And uh, this uh, tree marks the spot where the Emancipation Proclamation was read for the first time in the South. So it has incredible significance and importance. And it's a massive live oak, uh, same species as the Tumors Oak. And so doing our project there uh, would have this really interesting point of, be, uh, have this point of comparison right off the bat. So Dr. Gortzen and I uh, just recently launched ACTG, or the American Campus Tree Genomes Project, where we're trying to wrap up this idea of teaching a build-it-yourself-and-publish-it plant genome course that we're developing right now at Auburn, but we want to be able to extend that to campuses across the country. And the idea is that if you on your campus want to do exactly what we're doing at Auburn, you want your students to assemble and annotate and publish your campus's famous or historic or important tree genome. My laboratory here at Hudson Alpha can help you generate that kind of data. And together with Dr. Gortzen, we can deliver you a set of modules or lectures and lessons and laboratories and help you connect to this exact same compute uh, virtual system that we're using so that you too could do this exact same project with your tree on campus. It is just a tree to some people, but for everyone at Auburn, it meant more than that. 
Thank you for joining us on this tiny expedition into a football rivalry gone bad and the science that emerged as the champion. This season, we will continue journeying through the world of agriculture. We will trek through a peanut field, get a behind the scenes look at craft brewing and see how technology is benefiting farmers and consumers alike. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside of companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this work worthwhile, do us a small favor right now. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and tell someone that you listened to this interesting little story about genetics. Help them find our podcast. Knowledge is better when you share it. We want to say thank you to the Auburn Sports Network for providing us with audio clips to use in this episode. And we want to say a special thank you to you for joining us and downloading this episode. We'd love for you to subscribe and join us every other week for our next tiny expedition.